listening to this Aspen podcast titled Advancements in Lipid Emulsions, The Emergence of Olive Oil, sponsored by Baxter Healthcare Corporation. This podcast was intended to be part of a central stage presentation at Aspen 20. Aspen and Baxter are happy to bring this information to you despite the cancellation of the live conference. For more information on this topic, Baxter Healthcare produced a three-part short video series Advances in Lipid Emulsions, Emergence of Clinolipids. You can find these short videos on the Aspen YouTube site or at www.nutritioncare.org forward slash capital P, capital N resources. My name is Mary Russell. I'm a registered dietitian nutritionist and medical science liaison at Baxter Healthcare. It's my great pleasure to have the opportunity today to speak with Dr. Gary P. Zaloga. Dr. Zaloga is a recognized physician researcher and clinician with medical expertise in metabolic and nutritional alterations and therapies in acute and critically ill patients. He combines knowledge of basic metabolism, laboratory and clinical research, clinical care, and pharmaceutical experience, including regulatory issues. Dr. Zaloga has lectured throughout the world and has published over 500 articles, abstracts, and chapters. His most recent professional positions include Senior Medical Director for Nutrition at Baxter Healthcare, Deerfield, Illinois, from 2006 through 2016, and currently the Chief Medical Officer for MedSci Health Consultants in Florida. Dr. Zaloga, thank you for joining me today to discuss effects of advances in lipid emulsions. Lipids are the primary structural component of cellular membranes and have impact on receptors and permeability, among other important factors. How do we best explain to other colleagues how intravenous lipid emulsions affect these factors and why those effects matter? Thank you, it's a pleasure to be here. Let me start out by saying lipids represent the primary structural component of cell membranes, which are dynamic lipid bilayers, and include surface membranes, nuclear membranes, endoplasmic reticulum, mitochondrial membranes, and other organelle membranes. Each fatty acid and lipid molecule has a different structure. The lipid content and head structure of membranes determines membrane integration and localization of numerous proteins that include receptors, ion channels, and signaling molecules. It is the localization and interactions between these molecules which dictate numerous cell functions. In addition, fatty acids within the cell membranes act as signaling molecules, coupling extracellular events to cellular functions such as inflammation, immune response, and wound healing. Lipid is normally supplied to all cells in the body via chylomicrons and lipoproteins. During parenteral nutrition, lipid is supplied within chylomicron-like lipid globules. Thus, the fatty acid content of intravenous lipid directly impacts upon lipid content and function of cellular membranes, which impact inflammation and immune system function. Thanks, Dr. Zaloga, and I'm going to piggyback off that inflammation point to mention that the effects of IV lipid emulsions on the inflammatory response are really a topic of great interest to all clinicians. So what key messages would you suggest that our audience members can share with colleagues about these effects on inflammatory response, especially those colleagues who are not nutrition support practitioners? First, lipids greatly impact the inflammatory response and function of immune cells involved in the inflammatory response. Fatty acids largely within cell membranes act as modulators and regulators of inflammation. An example is arachidonic acid, a metabolic product of the essential omega-6 polyunsaturated fatty acid linoleic acid, 
which is found in high concentrations in soybean oil. Arachidonic acid is the direct precursor to a large series of pro-inflammatory molecules that include prostaglandins, leukotrienes, and thromboxane. Many of our anti-inflammatory agents work by blocking production of these molecules from arachidonic acid. The inhibition of cyclooxygenase by non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agents, such as ibuprofen, is an example. Fatty acids with decreased or no inflammatory activity, such as oleic acid found in high concentrations in olive oil, replace arachidonic acid in cell membranes, limiting its metabolism or limiting the reactivity of inflammatory cells. Scientific evidence suggests that limiting the intake of omega-6 polyunsaturated fatty acids, such as linoleic acid found in high concentrations in soybean oil, can limit the inflammatory response to the benefit of the patient. As a result, the Aspen FCCM guidelines recommend limiting the use of soy-based lipid emulsion. Great, thanks Dr. Zaloga. I wanted to, to again follow up on that point that you just made and ask you to explain a little bit more about the fact that the clinical response to an IV lipid emulsion depends on its fatty acid composition. It's a fact that clinolipid does contain more omega-9 fatty acid than other IV lipid emulsions. So please help us put that comment in perspective for the clinician who might be considering bringing clinolipid onto their formulary. Thank you. Um, as I mentioned earlier, each fatty acid has a unique structure and imparts unique properties to cell membranes, as well as affecting downstream metabolic lipid molecules. The three major classes of unsaturated fatty acids, these are fatty acids with one or more double bonds, are the omega-9 monounsaturated fatty acids, primarily oleic acid found in high concentrations in olive oil, omega-6 polyunsaturated fatty acids such as linoleic acid found in high concentrations in soybean oil, and omega-3 polyunsaturated fatty acids such as docosahexanoic acid, known as DHA, and icosapentanoic acid, known as EPA, both found in high concentrations in fish oil. Importantly, both omega-6 and omega-3 polyunsaturated fatty acids alter inflammatory responses and suppress immune cell responsiveness. However, much of this has only been demonstrated in in vitro studies, and there is insufficient clinical evidence to support improved clinical outcomes with one lipid over the other. However, uniquely, the omega-9 monounsaturated fatty acid, oleic acid, is relatively neutral upon both inflammation and immune reactivity. Thus, clinolipid, lipid injectable emulsion for intravenous use, high in omega-9 monounsaturated fatty acids, might be an option to consider in patients in whom one does not wish to alter inflammation and immune responsiveness. This includes many patients requiring parenteral nutrition who are immune suppressed from their injury or illness. Great. Thanks very much for clarifying that, Dr. Zaloga. I wanted to go back to one of the papers that you mentioned in one of your YouTube videos, and that's the concept proposed by Gentile et al. about the importance of identifying therapies to prevent prolonged immunosuppression and restore immune function. Please tell us a little more about that. Well, Gentile and colleagues published a very nice article in the journal Trauma Acute Care Surgery in 2012 entitled Persistent Inflammation and Immunosuppression, a Common Syndrome and a New Horizon for Surgical Intensive Care. 
The authors describe the larger group of patients who linger in the ICU and hospital with ongoing protein metabolism, poor nutritional status, poor wound healing, immunosuppression, and recurrent infections. These patients are considered to have a syndrome consisting of persistent inflammation, immunosuppression, and catabolism, which is known as PICS. This prolonged immunosuppressive state was described by Bone in 1996 as the compensatory anti-inflammatory response syndrome known as CARS. CARS followed a short period of exaggerated inflammation known as the systemic inflammatory response syndrome or SIRS. SIRS was rapid in onset and of short duration and was followed by a longer phase of progressive immune dysfunction characterized by multiple defects in adaptive immunity. Thus, current therapy no longer targets exaggerated inflammation, but rather seeks ways to prevent or restore immune function. Therefore, in theory, suggested use of nutritional strategies that may not impair immune function, such as high olive oil-based lipids, are recommended over strategies that may impair immune function, such as soybean oil-based lipids. Thanks, Dr. DeLoga. I wanted to follow up on that point and ask you to comment on the implications of the fact that clinolipid of all the intravenous lipid emulsions currently approved for adults in the U.S. contains the lowest percentage of soybean oil. As mentioned, soybean oil-based lipid, which is high in linoleic acid, has been shown to exaggerate inflammation, partly by increasing arachidonic acid content in cell membranes and impair immune cell responsiveness. Clinolipid has the lowest content of soybean oil of all adult lipid emulsions at 20%. Minimizing the amount of soybean oil to an amount that meets essential fatty acid requirements is felt to limit immune suppression. Of note, much of this has been demonstrated in in vitro studies, and there is insufficient clinical evidence to support improved clinical outcomes of one lipid compared to the other. Nevertheless, the Aspen Physician paper on the clinical role for alternative lipid emulsions, published in 2012, states that based upon substantial biochemical and clinical evidence, alternative oil-based intravenous fat emulsions may have less pro-inflammatory effects, less immune suppression, and more antioxidant effects than standard soybean oil-based intravenous fat emulsions, and may potentially be a better alternative energy source. Thanks very much, Dr. Zaloga. I wanted to, again, piggyback on something you just mentioned about oxidation and ask you to please describe how the products of lipid oxidation may cause damage to body tissues and how the products of fatty acid oxidation play a role in patient healing and recovery. Okay, thank you. Uh, oxidants are extremely damaging to tissues and are known to alter the structure of biomolecules that include lipids, proteins, and nucleic acids resulting in cell dysfunction and death. The primary oxidants within the human body are the reactive oxygen species known as ROS. These include superoxide, hydroxyl, and hydroperoxyl radicals. ROS production is increased by infection, inflammation, and tissue injury, and has been linked to numerous diseases that include cancer, neurodegenerative disease, cardiovascular disease, and organ failures. Because ROS are damaging to tissues, cells have developed intricate antioxidant systems to limit the damage. These systems include a variety of enzymes and antioxidants, such as vitamin E. 
A primary target of ROS are polyunsaturated fatty acids. Double bonds within fatty acid molecules predispose these sites to attack by ROS. ROS attack on lipids containing double bonds, especially polyunsaturated fatty acids, results in lipid peroxyl radicals and hydroperoxides in a process known as lipid peroxidation. Damage to the lipids can interfere with membrane integrity and function, inactivating membrane proteins, and lead to cellular dysfunction and death. Lipid peroxidation increases when oxidant stress is high and overwhelms endogenous antioxidant systems. It is also increased by high intake of polyunsaturated fatty acids. Lipid peroxidation can be limited by decreasing fatty acids with high oxidant potential such as polyunsaturated fatty acids, and by increasing fatty acids with low oxidant potential, such as monounsaturated fatty acids. Thanks, Dr. Zaloga. I wanted to again follow up on that and say that you mentioned that fatty acid defects are dependent on the patient's inflammatory and immune status. What about the dose of lipid administered? How does that factor in? As with other nutrients and drugs, the dose of lipid administered to a patient is very important. The dose must represent a physiologically relevant dose for the patient and the clinical diseases being treated. Inadequate delivery of lipid may minimize the chances for beneficial effects. As such, lipids should be delivered daily and can combinate with the delivery of other nutrients within the parenteral nutrition prescription. Excellent, thanks again. Now I'm gonna switch gears a little bit and again reference something that you talked about in one of your YouTube videos. And that was the GIA study that was accomplished in China. I did want to ask you to tell us a little bit more about why pre-albumin was chosen as a primary efficacy marker in that study. Thank you. We chose pre-albumin for several reasons. First, pre-albumin was chosen as the primary efficacy marker because it represents a readily available negative acute phase reactant that can be measured in most hospitals. Levels of pre-albumin decrease during inflammation as synthesis of many hepatic proteins is reprioritized towards acute phase proteins such as cytokines. Levels of pre-albumin also decrease as a result of inflammation-induced transcapillary leak and low nutrient intake resulting in cellular starvation. As a result, levels decrease during infection and tissue injury. As inflammation subsides, pre-albumin usually increases provided nutrient administration is adequate. Improvement in levels suggests control of these biological processes. Thus, a lipid emulsion which minimizes inflammation can be expected to result in better pre-albumin levels than one which exaggerates inflammation. In addition, pre-albumin has a short half-life of approximately two days and is capable of responding to both the initial inflammatory insult and recovery during the time of the study, usually within the first week, making it possible to detect differences between lipid groups. Finally, prealbumin is also a prognostic indicator. Like albumin, low levels of prealbumin and persistent decreases in prealbumin levels are associated with poor prognosis. Thus, a rising prealbumin level is a good prognostic sign. Great, thanks Dr. Zaloga for reminding us about the value of prealbumin in this particular case in particular. So the last question that I have for you on our podcast today is to help us and help any clinicians who are considering changing from a 100% soybean oil intravenous lipid emulsion to one of a different composition. 
and ask you what should be their three most important considerations and why should they consider those things? First, it's paramount to understand the effects of the fatty acids within the lipid emulsion upon inflammation and immune responsiveness. As suggested by guidelines, use of a lipid emulsion that does not exaggerate the inflammatory response or suppress immune functions is desirable in the majority of patients requiring parenteral nutrition, since persistent inflammation and progressive immune suppression are common in these patients. Second, it is important to appreciate the effects that polyunsaturated fatty acids play regarding their contribution to essential fatty acid requirements and their potential for cellular oxidant damage. Third, use of a lipid emulsion that has substantial clinical experience in the type of patients being treated with parental nutrition is very important. Long-term use of the lipid emulsion in a variety of patient populations supports safe clinical use of the product. Dr. Zaloga, thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise with us. We really appreciate it, and we hope all of our listeners are taking value from all of your excellent comments. Before we close, I request that all listeners pay attention to this important information about clinolipid. Clinolipid 20% lipid injectable emulsion for intravenous use is indicated in adults for providing a source of calories and essential fatty acids for parental nutrition when oral or enteral nutrition is not possible, insufficient, or contraindicated. The limitations of use are as follows. Clinolipid injection is not indicated for use in pediatric patients because there is insufficient data to demonstrate that clinolipid injection provides sufficient amounts of essential fatty acids in this population. The omega-3, omega-6 fatty acid ratio in clinolipid injection has not been shown to improve clinical outcomes compared to other intravenous lipid emulsions. Warning of a death in preterm infants. This is the black box warning on all lipid emulsions except omegaven. Deaths in preterm infants after infusion of intravenous lipid emulsions have been reported in the medical literature. Autopsy findings included intravascular fat accumulation in the lungs. Preterm infants and low birth weight infants have poor clearance of intravenous lipid emulsion and increased free fatty acid plasma levels following lipid emulsion infusion. Finally, the selected important risk information as follows. The use of clinolipid injection is contraindicated in patients with the following. Known hypersensitivity to egg or soybean proteins, the lipid emulsion and or excipients, or severe hyperlipidemia and severe disorders of lipid metabolism. Carefully monitor severely undernourished patients and slowly increase their nutrient intakes while avoiding overfeeding to prevent refeeding complications. Frequent clinical and laboratory determinations are necessary throughout treatment. Monitor fluid status closely in patients with pulmonary edema or heart failure. Thank you, our audience, for listening to this Aspen podcast. That's all for this episode. To support what we do, please share, subscribe, and leave a review on SoundCloud. Thank you again. Thank you.